I have an interesting subject here today that I think we will greatly enjoy. There are many Gospels being preached, and I believe we can find the truth in the subject that I have chosen, Paul's Gospel of Christ. Let us pray. Dear God, as we open the book of Romans in our search for a true knowledge of the gospel, we plead that the Holy Spirit will be given to thy servant and also to each listener in order that we may clearly understand the nature of the saving gospel of Christ. This is our prayer in his name. Amen. I have chosen what I feel is the most positive statement to be found in the book of Romans. Romans 1.16 I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. This, this afternoon, as we take a look at this powerful gospel, time will not permit a discussion of all the important texts, but we will not neglect one single verse that is needed to obtain a true knowledge of the gospel. As we begin, I think you will immediately discover that Paul does not present the gospel in melt terms for newborn saints, but rather he addresses the believers in Rome as mature Christians who are needful of solid meat. So don't expect a milk bottle feeding this afternoon, for we are about to partake of some real solid spiritual food that will require a thorough brain mastication in order to intelligently discern truth from error. And I think it only fair that before I proceed I must tell you that I received considerable help in this preparation from the pen of Dr. W. W. Gibbs, who resides in Paradise, California. So let us begin our study. We find Paul preaching with a power of assurance because Jesus had personally given him the gospel and had personally commanded him to preach it into all the world. This is why Paul begins and he ends his message in the book of Romans with such authority. For he says, beginning in Romans 1.1, I am a servant of Jesus Christ called to be an apostle. And he ends the book of Romans with these words, found in Romans 16.25, Now to him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel, and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery which was kept silent since the world began. 
Now, in between these two statements of his authority, you will find that the first three chapters tell us of the power of Jesus Christ as it comes into the life of the believer. For this power changes the life of sinful behavior to that of a life of righteous living. Now, because Jesus took our sinful nature and he was born of humanity with the aid of divine power, which was given him from God, he not only never sinned once in his life, but he was also able to provide you and me with the same power, making it possible for us also to live victoriously over sin. As we come to chapter 4 of Romans, Paul begins by giving us an example of Father Abraham that he might illustrate to us that it is not just by faith alone that we receive this infinite power, because faith must be accompanied by works, which are wrought out by the infinite power, infinite power of Christ, which dwells within the heart of the believer. So now let us read Romans 4, 21 and 22, and let's read it very carefully. And being fully persuaded, I like that, fully persuaded that he had promised he was able also to perform, and therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. Now let's, let's look at it again. And Abraham, being fully persuaded that what he, God, had promised, he was able to perform. Therefore, it was imputed to him for righteousness. Now, this verse tells us that Abraham's faith was so totally based on trust in God that he believed God was able to do anything through him that God had promised to do. As he closes this chapter, Paul does so with an amazing statement of fact. And I hope that you will note it carefully and uh, mark it down in your Bible, because what Paul writes was written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And these words, which I am going to read, totally contradict today's new theology teaching. For Paul states that the cross did not bring total justification. Why? Because the death of Christ on the cross must be followed by a work of a resurrected Christ in order to complete what was begun by Christ's death on Calvary. Now, I hope you are grasping this illuminating fact. You see, the shed blood on Calvary's cross for sin must also be applied personally to each believer after repentance has taken place. How? By a resurrected living Christ and this is exactly what Paul is saying. 
In Romans 4.25, who, speaking of Christ, was delivered for our offenses. That is, he died for our sins. Then notice the wording, and was raised again for our justification. Nothing could be stated more plainly. Ellen White also speaks of a work that Jesus must perform for our salvation after the cross. Listen to these words, Great Controversy 489. The intercession of Christ in man's behalf in the sanctuary above is as essential to the salvation as was his death upon the cross. By his death he began that work which after his resurrection he ascended to complete in heaven. Nothing could be more clear. It is the cross and the sanctuary. It is very, very clear. And we should be praising God that we have the spirit of prophecy to guide us that we come to these right conclusions. You see, our loving God knew that in the end approached, Satan would become so cunning, so deceptive in his ability, that he could even mislead the saints of God. That is why he gave us a prophet, a prophet to the remnant church, so that we would not make a fatal mistake. Now this brings us to chapter 5. And this chapter has become a stumbling block to many Seventh-day Adventists today. Why? Because they are hearing sermons being preached and they are reading books printed on our presses representing interpretations that differ widely from the light given to us by the spirit of prophecy. For example, let's consider a statement from the recent book, The Unbelief, written by Jack Sequeira. This book was published by the Pacific Press Publishing Association. In pages 34 to 37, the author has broken the gospel into two separate parts, namely, one, the objective gospel, and two, the subjective gospel. Terminology speaking, God has never used such words, and neither has Ellen White. For there is no biblical evidence or authority for such a separation. You see, when one divides the gospel into two separate segments, you are trying to divide Jesus Christ himself. For the gospel is embodied in Christ's character, and Christ's life is the unfolding of his law in his every act. Listen to inspiration. I am reading from Christ Object Lessons, page 128. No man can rightly present the law without the gospel, or the gospel without the law. For the law is the gospel embodied, and the gospel is the law unfolded. Now we have read from both Romans 
and from the spirit of prophecy that justification, which is our forgiveness for our sins on the cross, and sanctification, the work of Christ which he is performing for us now in the sanctuary, that they are both absolutely necessary for our salvation. But now look at this new theology. So boldly displayed in this book, Beyond Belief. I'm reading from page 36. The objective gospel, the imputed righteousness of Christ, is what qualifies us for heaven, both now and in the judgment. And the subjective gospel, the imparted righteousness, that's speaking of sanctification, does not contribute to our qualifications for heaven. Now that's unbelievable. How can any honest person who has enough intelligence to read believe such a statement that teaches that justification is all we need to enter heaven and that sanctification is not necessary in our preparation for heaven? Perhaps I should put it in these words that this is, just as the book implies, it is beyond belief. Such a person who will believe this is deceived by the devil's lie. The author of this book continues, and I'm quoting from page 25, the gospel of faith plus works or justification plus sanctification is the heart of Roman Catholic theology. You know, when you think of what that means, that's just as well as stating that Sister White was a Jesuit because she preaches over and over that sanctification is necessary. I could read paragraph, page after page, in which we find that sanctification is that which enables us to be ready for Jesus to come. And yet, this new, strange, new theology is trying to tell us that this is legalism, for I am quoting again as I read, it's a subtle form of legalism. This new theology interpreting Roman 5 goes like this. Number one, that the gospel is unconditional good news. And that's not true. While the gospel is good news, it is not unconditional. Number two, this new theology teaches us that complete salvation was accomplished for us on Calvary's cross. That's a half-truth, because we just read that what Jesus began on Calvary is to be finished in the sanctuary. And the sanctuary is a work that is being done now, 2,000 years after the cross. Number three, it teaches this new theology that all sinned corporately in Adam. That's false. Number four, it teaches that we were all born sinners. That's false. 
Point number five, it teaches that it is by faith alone that we receive salvation. Again, that's a half-truth. Since faith must be demonstrated by obedience. Number six, this new theology teaches that all men were made righteous in Christ at his death, corporately speaking. Only those who accept Christ's death for them will Christ be able to make righteous. So you see, that is an untruth. And lastly, point number seven, the new theology teaches that we all died with Christ at the cross, and that's absolutely false. Why in the world are so many Adventists accepting such false teachings today? Because they don't study for themselves, and because they accept what is preached from some of our pulpits, accepting it without question. For they believe that what they read and what they hear today is the gospel truth. Now, I must pause here to substantiate this statement. Recently, I was confronted with our conference president, and there were seated with me six of my church elders. And uh, as we were talking about this new book of Sikiera, I asked the question, I said, how is it that on one day our presses can print a wonderful book like Desire of Ages and the next day can print a book of Sikiera called a book that is beyond belief, which is contrary absolutely to what Sister White wrote? I said, how can this be so? And the conference president had brought along a man to help him, and this man was a union conference president for many years. And he spoke up and said, I can answer that question, Brother Nelson. He said, I served on the board of the Pacific Press for many, many years, and I know their policy. They want to give their writers the freedom to express themselves as they see fit. So the press will not, and he used the word, will not censor the writings of those who write their books and articles. And this is why today in some of these books you will find statements which are contrary to what we believe. You know, that's unbelievable. From my youth, I was always taught that whatever you read in our presses, from our presses, was what we believed. Now, some of you may question a little further the statement by this man who had been a union president for years, but I hold here a copy of a letter written on General Conference stationery. And it is signed by George Reed, who is the director of the Biblical Research Institution. You can go to no higher authority in our church, aside from the spirit of prophecy in the Bible, if you want to have an understanding of what we believe. And notice what he says in this letter. 
In responding to this inquiry, I need to note that the General Conference almost never takes a stand on books flowing through our publishing houses. Any given book represents the ideas of its author. And publication through an Adventist house does not imply denominational endorsement. Now, isn't that something? Perhaps I should read a little bit more. Those of us in the biblical research find much in Jack C. Kerr's book as commendable. But having said that, we have reservations about some of his points. We would not urge the book on anyone or any congregation and regret if that is being done. To be specific, many points in the book reflect ideas of Whelan and Short and their 1888 message study committee. We have difficulty with CKR's contention that guilt cannot be transferred from one person to another. To us, this seems to weaken the substitutionary atonement of Christ. We feel he comes perilously close to the original sin doctrine that has developed within Catholicism, but which we find biblically lacking. And we find problems with his teaching of a universal justification taking place at the cross, of which every human is beneficiary without even his consent. To us, there is only one justification, that being justified by faith in which the sinner makes a conscious choice to accept Christ's merits. For us, the justification of Romans 3 and 5 is the same. We have difficulty with the book's contention that Christ did not die in our place, but that in an ontological, mythical manner, we died in him. Well, I could go on and read. And so today, this is why I have stated from the pulpit many, many times that we must be awake as to what we hear preached and as to what we read from our presses today. But back to some of these false teachings that separate justification from sanctification. Let's look closely at Romans 5 as it states the truth. I am reading Romans 5, 10, and 11. For if when we were enemies, <clears throat> we were reconciled to God by his death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Now, did you notice something? Did you notice the words, we shall be saved by his life? And again, the words, by whom we have now received the atonement. This clearly talks of a present state, but the book beyond 
presents it in a past state. I'm reading from this book of Sikera, page 51. We can rejoice because we have already received the atonement. See, that's in the past. But God's word presents it in the present tense. The new theology puts it in the past. And that's a world of a difference. The scriptures of verse 10 and 11 speak about a reconciliation that happens in the future tense, not by a life that was wholly lived in the past, by, but by a life that is now being lived in heaven for us, in the sanctuary. It also states, we shall be saved by his life, and I ask you, where is the life of Christ now in action for us? In the sanctuary, which also makes it possible for his life to be manifested within us now, in the present state. Now this brings us to verse number 12. I'm reading, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Now notice the wording. Death passed upon all men, for all men have sinned. Now let's read it out of this book beyond belief of the new theology. I'm reading page 52. We must conclude that Paul is saying in Romans 5.12 that death spread to all mankind because all have sinned in Adam. Now where did they get those words? That's not in the scripture. It doesn't sound right, and it doesn't sound right when you compare it with the other scriptures. For it is a sin to add to the scriptures, heaven forbid, Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. It doesn't say in Adam, did it? It said we have. And then in Psalms 58, 3, it says, the wicked are entranced from the womb. They go astray as soon as they are born. It doesn't say they were born that way. It says when they are born, then they go astray. Let us explore this a little bit further. What actually happened when Adam sinned? And you may be surprised. Remember, Adam was the prince of this world. But who sinned first? Eve. She was the one first to sin. And it was not until Adam sinned that the world was disconnected from God's presence. Now you say, Brother Nelson, how do you know this? I'll tell you how. Because when Eve ate of the forbidden fruit and she picked some and she brought it to Adam, there was no change to be seen within her. She had already disobeyed God. In the book, The Story of Redemption, page 36, Adam said he looked at her as she brought the food and encouraged him to eat it, and it says, and I'm quoting, Adam saw in her no sign of death. Why? Because her sin was not premeditated. But Adam, as the prince of this world, who was still filled with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, he knew what was right, 
he knew what was wrong and he deliberately sinned when he took of the forbidden fruit and ate it. And the moment that he did that, both of them then saw that they were naked. Genesis 3, 7. And their eyes of them both were opened and they knew that they were naked. Consider this more closely. Thou shalt surely die. These words declared by God would be the result of disobedience. In Genesis 2.17, In the day that thou eatest, thou shalt surely die. Now God wasn't speaking of a natural death. God was speaking of a second death. The death that is eternal. This is why Adam and Eve, having sinned, could never have eternal life unless a substitute, a savior, could be found. For the very moment that they sinned, Adam and Eve died spiritually. And this death by sin passed upon all men. Because without the tree of life, there would be physical death, for all have sinned. This fact is upheld by all Bible writers. For instance, Ezekiel 18.20, The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son. In other words, we are punished for our sins, not somebody else. So, as death came by sin, because sin brings death. I have seen someone bitten by a rattlesnake. And if there is not something found, that person will die. The sting is sin. The sting is death. In Romans 5.18, we are ready now to read, Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, <clears throat> the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. Now this is a restatement of verse 12. We recognize this condition as corporate to all of us. For in this verse, Adam is contrasted with Christ. Since the judgment was by one to the condemnation of all, so everything that took place because of Adam's fall is forever undone through Jesus Christ. All that was lost is restored in Jesus. And that's wonderful. I just feel like saying praise his name. Now, I hope that you're still awake. I know we're into some heavy material here, but I have another question. What was lost when Adam sinned? Since Adam had conditional immortality, he could not die as long as he continued to eat of the tree of life. But since he sinned, he was no longer in possession of conditional immortality. Therefore, he could not pass immortality on to his descendants. Never, never forget this. Immortality promised to man 
on condition of obedience had been forfeited by transgression. Adam could not transmit to his posterity that which he did not possess. I'm reading from Great Controversy 533. And there could have been no hope for the fallen race had not God, by the sacrifice of his son, brought immortality within their reach. Again, I want to repeat something. That Satan is the only one who has ever promised Adam eternal life in disobedience. He's the only one. And I beg you, don't let any preacher, don't let any book you read, tell you that you can continue in sin until Jesus comes and expect to have eternal life. It's a lie of the new theology, and it comes from the master deceiver. Remember, Christ has promised that by his priestly work, now being performed in the heavenly sanctuary, he is able to restore within you a spiritual life by the indwelling of the Spirit of God. This personal experience of an indwelling Holy Spirit will save you from the second death. It is only with this understanding that you can ever rightly state that you have everlasting life now. Not everlasting physical life, but restored spiritual life. Now before we leave chapter 5, it would be well to consider the meaning of guilt keeping in mind that there are several types of guilt, and I think you're going to hear something you have not thought of before. One, when we sin, we are individually guilty of the sin we personally commit. And I don't think you'll find any problem with that. For this is not corporate guilt, for we are guilty of our own transgressions. But now, number two, there is a second type of guilt, described in Scripture and mentioned in the spirit of prophecy, such as you find in the book Faith and Works. Page 88, listen. Adam sinned, and the children of Adam share his guilt and its consequences. Now, if you're with me in your thoughts, you will find that this guilt is what crushed the heart of Jesus Christ when he was here on earth. This guilt caused a separation in Adam from God and it brought about a separation in Christ from God because he carried our sins. Since Jesus died for Adam and Eve's sins and ours, he must be separated from God just as Adam experienced in the Garden of Eden. This guilt Christ suffered when he cried, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He'd never committed a sin, but he carried our sins, and there had to be a separation. Isaiah 59, 2 says, Your iniquities have separated you between you and your God. This is why God had to withdraw his spirit from Adam the moment that he sinned. 
If he had not done so, Adam would have been destroyed immediately because the scripture states, God is a consuming fire, Acts 11.29. So Adam, having sinned and now separated from God, possesses no power to resist evil. And it is this loss or guilt that he passed on to you and to me. I trust you're following these heavy thoughts. Signs of the Times, 10, 29, 1894. Jesus is our example in all things. He began life, passed through its experiences, and ended his record with a sanctified will. He was tempted in all points like as we are, yet because he kept his will surrendered and sanctified, he never bent in the slightest degree toward the doing of evil or toward manifesting a rebellion against God. What did Jesus live to do? It was the will of his heavenly Father. And this is why Jesus told Nicodemus, Ye must be born again, for only through the new birth can the experience of the life of Christ be experienced in our life. In Romans 5.18, Therefore, as by the offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. Now there is also a third type of guilt, and that is the loss of Christ's grace. The power to resist evil. For to be without Christ, there can be no spiritual power in the life. And this power must be a sustaining power. Let me illustrate. You may believe that Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River, for he was. But such a belief does not serve as your baptism. Jesus did not say to Nicodemus, I was baptized for you. And all you have to do is to accept what I did for you. All you have to do is believe. No. Christ said, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now you remember that at this point Nicodemus seemed a little bit confused until Jesus mentioned the serpent that Moses had raised on a pole. Immediately Nicodemus began to understand for he longed to experience a new birth. Jesus said as he answered, how can this be? And Jesus said, John 3:14 As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness even so must the son of man be lifted up that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life And now I want to bring to you that heavenly insight of God's prophet in Daniel in Desire of Ages 174 listen to this here was ground which Nicodemus was familiar. The symbol of the uplifted serpent made plain to him the Savior's mission. For as the image 
made in the likeness of a destroying serpent, was lifted up for their healing, so one in the likeness of sinful flesh was to be their redeemer. You know, there are thousands who need to learn this lesson, for they are depending on their own obedience to the law. Desire of Ages 174 continues. They depend on their own obedience to the law of God to commend them to his favor. When they are bidden to look to Jesus and believe that he saves them solely through his grace, they explain, how can this be? How then are we saved? John 1.25, by beholding the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. On 176 I read, The light shining from the cross reveals the love of God, and his love is drawing us to himself. If we do not resist this drawing, we shall be led to the foot of the cross in repentance for the sins that have crucified the Savior. Then, then the Spirit of God through faith produces a new life in the soul. The thoughts and the desires are brought into obedience to the will of Christ. The heart, the mind, are created anew in the image of him who works in us to subdue all things to himself. Then the law of God is written in the mind and heart. And we can say with Christ, I delight to do thy will, O my God. I hope you have captured this beautiful wonder, for it is an astonishing truth, as I read in Christ Object Lessons 271, to learn of Christ means to receive his grace, which is his character. Now, how are we ready Right now, I think we are ready to draw some conclusions concerning Romans 7 and 8. As Nicodemus had tried to understand Scripture by his own reasoning, now he understands with the help of the Holy Spirit to recognize that the serpent on the pole represented the sinful nature which Christ inherited at his birth being crucified on the cross. And now, Nicodemus, he realizes that he must crucify his sinful nature. And likewise, we also must crucify our sinful nature. Such obedience in following Christ is absolutely necessary for our salvation. Such an experience comes only in total surrender, which produces a godly, genuine obedience. Now, you can understand Romans 7, verses 19 to 25, for it describes Paul's experience before he was born anew. Like Nicodemus, he was trying to keep the law in his own strength. Listen. For the good that I would, I do not. 
but the evil which I would not, that I do. Now if I do that I would not, it is no more that I that do it, but that sin dwelleth in me. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall be able to deliver me from the body of this death? You see, this was Paul's experience before he was born anew. But new theology would have you believe that that's the experience of a born anew man. But as you begin with chapter 8, Paul explains that he too made a great new discovery. That discovery was that it was possible to win the battle of sin by permitting Jesus Christ to control his human nature through the power of the Holy Spirit, the divinity of God. Just as Christ was over, able to overcome by divine power, so we can experience victory by the same gift. So, in Romans 8, 1, 2, he says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. Why? Because, as it says in Romans 6, 6, the old man must be crucified with him. Just as Christ took our fallen nature and never sinned because he surrendered to divine power and was able to subdue every evil tendency, so we must also surrender to this same divine power if we are going to live a life of victory over sin. Paul concludes that such an experience is made possible by the genuine love of God. Romans 8, 38. I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor heights nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And speaking of this love, Desire of Ages 3.30, love for God, zeal for his glory, and love for fallen humanity brought Jesus to earth to suffer and to die. This was the controlling power of his life. And this principle he bids us adopt. Redemption is that process by which the soul is trained for heaven. This training means a knowledge of Christ. It means emancipation from ideas, habits, practices that have been gained in the school of the Prince of Darkness. 
the soul must be delivered from all that is opposed to loyalty to God. Many who profess to be his followers have an anxious, troubled heart because they are afraid to trust themselves to God. You know, when I read that, I, I said, here I am, I'm driving down the highway and here comes a car just three feet from me coming at me at 70 miles an hour and I got enough faith to believe that he's not going to hit me. And I get in an elevator 30 stories up in the air and I have enough faith to believe that the man who attached the cable fixed it so it wouldn't let go. But when it comes to ourselves, why is it that we are afraid to trust God Almighty? Let me read it again. Many who profess to be his followers have an anxious, troubled heart because they are afraid to trust themselves to God. They do not make a complete surrender to him because they shrink from the consequences that such a surrender may involve. Unless they do make this surrender, they cannot find peace. It is the love of self that brings unrest. But when we are born from above, the same mind will be in us that was in Jesus. As through Jesus, though Jesus was, as through Jesus we enter into rest, Heaven begins here. I want to end with that note. You know, we all talk about going to heaven. We long for heaven. We pray for heaven. We are trusting to see him come someday. But heaven can begin here if we will surrender ourselves to the mighty power of the gospel of Jesus. As Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Praise God. You and I can have that power in our life today. Let us pray. Loving Father, we get a little bit excited when we think of this mighty power. And Lord, we just long today that we may so surrender ourselves that you can bestow this power upon us, that we may have victory as Jesus did, victory over every temptation, that we may be ready to see Jesus when he comes, is our prayer. Amen.